Now that everyone's had a chance to find the text, I'll ask you to bow your heads and go with me before the Lord. Almighty God, as we assemble this morning, Lord, we come to you with much sin, with much agony, Lord, with defeat staring us in the face yet with the words of the last song that we sang to you. There is a grace that is greater than all our sin, God, and we come before you because we know the source of that grace. Because of your loving kindness and your mercy towards us, God, we know that Jesus Christ is in fact the embodiment of the grace of God. He is the mercy of God. He is the one who reigns. He is the one who will judge. Lord, but for those who truly know his identity, for those who have been called unto him, we know that uh, he is the source, he is the living water, and he is the bread of life. And God, we come to you now asking that by the power of your spirit and the truth of your word that you would testify to this congregation and any who would hear this message that Jesus Christ is Lord of Lord and Kings of Kings and that he is the Messiah and that he is the Savior, that he is man and that he is God. And we come, Lord, asking that uh, if this not be the reality that someone in this room would know, Lord, we just ask that by your great grace and your power that you would reveal such to them and that we could see the bride of Christ come in fact to her bridegroom, Lord, that we would... Uh, be given the opportunity and that we would take the responsibility that we have been given uh, to disciple those and to raise up and to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ in every season, in every text, Lord. And we just pray that uh, it would be so great this day, the presence of your spirit, that we would truly be joyful to see our sin and our Savior. God, would you please show us Christ in this text this morning? Would you show us a great measure of your love in doing that, Lord? And would you forgive us of our sin and use us, Lord, for your kingdom and receive this morning and this day our worship and our exaltation? Lord, we love you. We ask that you would make us more like Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. So the text this morning is Hebrews chapter 3 and verse 4, but uh, for some who may have not been here and, other, and for the rest of us to be reminded, I want to read uh, the first few verses. It says, Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. He was faithful to him who appointed him, as Moses also was in all his house. For he has been counted Worthy of more glory than Moses by just so much as the builder of the house has more honor than the house. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. And that is the verse that we look at this morning. For every house is built by someone, 
but the builder of all things is God. I want you to notice just before we even dive really into the text, uh, word by word and and, uh, phrase by phrase, that as it is speaking of the builder of the house and then of God being the builder of all things, certainly we'll recognize as we go through the text today that this is speaking of Jesus Christ. But as we would apply it in the temporal sense, the analogy, the illustration that is given, it says every house is built by someone. Could be anyone. The name really doesn't matter. But the text goes further to say, but the builder of all things is God. It shows us the supremacy of God, most certainly the supremacy of Christ, and it shows us just how small and insignificant every other man is. That's someone. And with sort of that introduction, I would like to greet you as Paul would greet my beloved brethren, saints of the Lord. Come now to the text of Scripture. Come now to Hebrews chapter 3 and seek the Lord Jesus Christ and seek to be spoken to by His Holy Spirit and to hear the message of the Son. And as I make mention each week, we've spent a great deal of time in Hebrews continually week after week, uh, month after month since the beginning of the year in this uh, particular epistle. And we have diligently sought to see with each text uh, the revelation of the unique one, the monogenes, the Son of God, the Son of Man, Jesus Christ, being He. And recently, you may remember that I asked one of you here in, the, in just the, a few days past, about being in this book and I asked has it become monotonous and it was a question that I I considered very carefully as I asked because in one sense I really don't care because we're speaking about Jesus Christ but in the next sense I do want to be sensitive to to the the needs of the particular congregation and as I had asked this question I was concerned that maybe some would grow restless Uh, time after time going to the same book and looking at one small word at a time and really diving deep into what God has said about Jesus Christ. And I was scared that maybe feeding from the same pasture week after week, uh, maybe you had wanted to cross the fence, so to speak, and and, and move to a different book. But uh, we we haven't, in fact, been here quite some time. And I'd hope not to hear anything like that with my question, but I, I did want to know the answer. And uh, as I said, I only spoke to, to one particular person and, and his family, and uh, the immediate response, as I said, was it really doesn't matter. But the truth is that wherever we go, we must be looking for Christ. And we must be looking. And so the truth is that I may have moved text and I may have moved books, but the subject would have been the same. And and I trust that you guys know that that would be the case. But uh, ultimately, our time in Hebrews, I believe, has proven very uh, successful on behalf of the Spirit. And I believe it has been most beneficial to this congregation and and extremely so true for myself. I've been uh, time and time again amazed and reminded and enlightened to things that I have missed about Jesus Christ in this Scripture because we 
so oftentimes read it and we take it a paragraph or a chapter at a time not stopping to see the wonders and the mystery of Christ revealed in the text and I think that it it has been very amazing to see what we would gain uh, spiritual knowledge from the Holy Spirit about Jesus Christ and seeing the intricacies of soteriology just in these first three chapters and it's a it's a picture of soteriology that the world does not understand that many professing quote-unquote Christians do not understand but this is a soteriology that is procured and secured by a single man Christ Jesus it is what makes it so expressly different than any other salvation that you may hear about in the world because this is true salvation in one sense it seems unfathomable But the truth is that Jesus Christ has been testified of by God the Father and by all the prophets beforehand and by all the men of God, by all the church since its inception and even the beginning forward from Adam the first created until now the last, the youngest of us, Christ, continue to be proclaimed as the only salvation that man has. And really as we consider the text of Hebrews, today is no different than every other week with each expression of Christ's submission to the Father and with each expression as we consider uh, his work as a man we cannot help but be so soon reminded again of his sovereignty and I think the text really goes there uh, especially the the first and second chapters but not to to stray from there even in the third that his sovereignty And his eternality and his ultimate deity is expressed time and time again. One whom has never ceased to be. This is the Christ that we serve. This is not the Jesus of the Jehovah's Witnesses. This is not the the Jesus of the Mormons. This is not the Jesus of many modern American, for lack of a better term, churches. This is the Jesus of the Bible. And this better be the Jesus that we're looking for. And this better be the Jesus that we love. And this better be the Jesus that corrects us in the appropriate times. And that loves us in the appropriate times. This is not a Jesus of our imagination, but this is the Jesus of the Scriptures. We can't help but see this. And as I look to my Bible in chapter 3, it's assigned a particular title. And most Bibles do have that in mind is assigned in this portion uh, Jesus, our high priest. And then another particular Bible that I have says Jesus, the Son who is faithful. And I believe both are denoting the inevitability required of humanity in His person. And yet they remain such to show that he is priest, that he is son of God, that he is deity exalted. Speaking here in chapter 3 to the saints, we're reminded of our duty in Christ. Not only us, but those who originally received this particular letter. It's penman, very undecided amongst Christians. And as I talked to Brother Charlie about it this week, I asked him how he felt about the book so far. And his response was 
basically what I said a couple weeks ago, you know, at the end of the day, the penman doesn't matter. We could care less. And that better be how we feel, and that ought to be how we feel. And we don't want to get uh, caught up in divisive conversations or, or uh, arguments about who wrote the words on paper. But we better be sure who we know inspired this word. And so the chapter really addresses and depicts to the one whom Christ has been effectual, the bride, the church. It depicts their responsibility, and it depicts their calling to this high priest, to this apostle of their confession, Jesus Christ. But also in this dress, in this address, rather, is the origin of such a calling. It says, Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling. Not just any calling. And the calling is described with this single word here, heavenly. It's not dared to be confused with an earthly calling. And I believe that's why it is written the way that it is. It is not dared to be confused with an earthly calling. It is not dared to be confused with a mere earthly decision. But the balance of our lives and the eternity of our souls is hanging upon the wisdom of man to respond to the gospel. And in that, it simply relies upon the reception of this call. We cannot have the response if we do not have in ourselves one who has heard the call. One who has picked up the phone, if you will, proverbially. The reception of the call is the reception of a call that is made from one who is seated on the right hand, one who is at the majesty, most holy place, most glorious position. And by understanding where the call comes from, we also know that this call is from heaven. It is of God. It is certainly from the Lord Jesus Christ. And the one who truly hears it likewise will indeed need to respond. And praise the Lord, Proverbs chapter 16, as I cite it many times, tells us the truth about our response to anything, but yes, to include the gospel, that the plans of the heart belong to man, but the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. That we would answer the call, so has it been sovereignly decreed of God that that would be the case. For is it not said in this famous passage often quoted, Romans chapter 8, verse 30, Moreover, whom he did predestinate them, he also called. And whom he called, them he also justified. And whom he justified, them he also glorified. Notice what we see there. We see this particular heavenly calling described in Hebrews chapter 3 verse 1. But we see it from an eternal perspective. We see it from the perspective of one who is in heaven. It is he who predestinated. It is he who is calling. He who is justifying the one who answers the call. And it is he who has justified himself. And then he who is also glorifying because he is glorified. Everything that He does for us, He does because He already is that exact thing. He is our righteousness. He is our justification. He is our holiness. 
He is our Lord and Savior because He has always been those things. And so what we see, considering this calling, considering Romans chapter 8, verse 30, as we see Christ at work according to the good pleasure of God the Father. And He is calling those whom He alone has prepared to hear this calling. In every sense, the greatest analogy would be considered an inmate on death row. To put it in earthly terms, the day of his execution, he's standing here. He may be sitting in the electric chair prepared to be put to death. Guilty, without question, is the man who we presume to speak about. And death is certain. The time is such that it is so close that it is indeed now imminent and his only hope is a pardon. There's no phone call offered to this death row inmate. He cannot pick up the phone and ask the governor, the president to pardon. Instead, he relies upon the mercy of the one who is in power. He cannot beg the ruler for forgiveness, for the time has come, it's been decreed, and it shall be so just as condemnation for every man. Hope is lost. Instead, this merciful one has the power. And if the call is not made, if the discretion is not left to him, then this hope certainly does not exist. But what we see in this account is one of every Christian who has ever followed Christ, who would ever come to know Christ, who will ever follow Christ in the future, if he does not call, we will leave the world guilty and condemned. And we didn't just have verse 1 in Hebrews chapter 3 to describe uh, this much-needed call and its origin, but we have a description, the pardoner, and his name is Jesus. Sweetest name I know. We sing a song that says that. And not only does he pardon, but the text says very clearly that he is the apostle. He is the high priest. He is bringing before men the decree and expectations of God the Father. And before God the Father, he is bringing a holy and acceptable sacrifice that is himself and it is made on behalf of mankind. And if it were not enough that he would bring the sacrifice, he himself is the sacrifice. The all-sufficient sacrifice. Yet still, as we know, the people of God tend to place a great emphasis on a many number of things, people, beings, angels, rather than to place the emphasis on Christ. We call this idolatry, inanimate things being treasured over Christ, sinful people being honored over a perfect Savior, angels reverenced instead of their Creator, And the text says, consider Jesus worthy above all, worthy above those considered the best of the best because he indeed is the creator of all things. And so as we see that unpacked in the first uh, three verses, 
And we arrive to verse 4. It says, For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Every house. When I saw this, I said, I don't know how I can break this verse. It's a small verse here. It's very short. How can you break this down? And as I began to consider it, I looked at the illustration shown forth in the scriptures and I looked to this definitive characteristic of the house. It says, which house, which house, every house, every single house, not one to be excluded, all to be included, every single one. So no matter how you picture the house, whatever you think that it spiritually represents, it doesn't represent a small portion or a large portion. It represents the entirety The size is very particular, but almost infinite as we would consider it. It's not those of a particular size. It's not those houses in a particular area. It's not these neighborhoods that are reserved for the rich or for the elite or those belonging to a special group. It's not even talking about the house that belongs to the Christian. Every house, it says. The text emphasizes each and every single one. You immediately are able to see that the Creator, Jesus Christ, simply did not create only the perfect houses, only those houses to be saved, but every house. This is why every man stands condemned because he is taking and is robbing God of His glory. And Jesus... Of the same, yet he is the builder of the house. Yet all of this work is his creation, and it extends, of course, through the unregenerate as well as his elect. Every house is built by someone, every house created, every structure is assembled, and naturally, if we can see the house, it must have been built by someone and this must be someone who knows what they're doing because without knowing what they're doing to some extent even the smallest extent the house wouldn't be there and it wouldn't look like a house and it wouldn't appear to be a house it can serve in any way like a house so not only must we recognize that Christ is this builder but that he knows what he's doing And I'll know only a few builders who would build a house without plans. Certainly the plan of God was this plan and it didn't come into creation as a result of man falling, but it has always been in place. Every house built by someone. And naturally, we understand that this is every single one without such a builder, there would be no house to look upon. The emphasis is that each one has an origin. Each one has a builder. For we cannot praise that which did not exist before its glory. As always, the temporal understanding leads to, for some who are in Christ, a spiritual mystery now revealed in Christ. And we may suppose that the houses spiritually represent something other than a structure to live in for man. They may represent 
from the largest spectrum and broadcast to the smallest frame and consideration countries and nations, states or territories, neighborhoods, or particular bodies or churches or congregations, families, marriages, or if we want to take it down to its root, the individual. The greatest of these may, in fact, be to understand such a house on the individual basis. For before one may see any other, any nation, neighborhood, family, he must first personally acknowledge his own maker. We cannot recognize the house if we do not recognize the nails, the studs, the bricks. And then to recognize all of those things, we must recognize the one who created the mud that makes the mortar, the steel that makes the nail, and so on and so forth. And as we carry it all back, it must come to one place, the source. This is how we would understand it individually, that we must see that our Creator has created this house, this individual, this me, And then we must understand that the sacrifice has too been shown to us and revealed through the Word. How wonderful such an application is that we can see the blood of Jesus Christ is applied to one untimely and selfish me. You know, the emphasis here is to continue in understanding and the surpassing knowledge of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, to see Him as the Apostle and the High Priest of our confession, greater than Moses, greater than Abraham, for both are His creation. And that's the idea behind the verse. Every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Better than Moses, better than Abraham, better than Paul, greater than I is this Jesus Christ, this High Priest, this true Apostle, the Messenger of God, God in the flesh. You see, the idea is that the people who were receiving the letter esteemed Moses very highly. And yet, the appeal is such to say that Moses had a builder. Abraham had a builder. Both are creation. And in understanding these things, and understanding that we are houses built by Christ Himself, we look to the truth that not only are we built by Him, saints of the Lord, not only are we built by Jesus Christ, but this Jesus Christ whom we speak of, we are built upon Him. There is no building unless He is at its foundation. This is the Jesus Christ who is the foundation, the chief cornerstone To be considered in light of Moses and Abraham and Elijah or John the Baptist, he must be considered greater. Greater than these men who are so significant to the people of God. He's greater than all of these. He is the foundation. He is the one who has established these men and he has done so upon himself. Christ is even their foundation. 
our rock and our redeemer. Another hymn says this. It says, Our hope is built on nothing less. We're talking about things being built here. And most certainly we're assembling because we have hope in Jesus Christ and that hope is built on nothing less than Him Himself. Our rock is Christ. Our assurance is in Christ. Our hope is a certain hope that is in Christ. And the very tools by which we edify the saints, the very gifts that we have, are those given to us by the Creator God, Jesus Christ, the Messiah. Spiritual gifts. The things that some, some churches love to focus on and glorify, even idolize. Those are tools given by Jesus Christ Himself. There again, to be reminded, every house has a builder. Every tool has a builder. These houses may not be worshipped, but only seen as magnificent in order that Christ may be glorified for the work that He's done in them. When we take a particular perspective that these houses are speaking to us on the individual basis, we must look to see that it is not so that the house merely recognizes the Creator, but that the house would recognize the Creator and proclaim the Creator and show His glory and His awesomeness to the world because that is the purpose. The purpose is not simply to have a heavenly home or to see just the great things that Christ can do, but to see how great He is. You know, as Pat was talking this morning about Christ and about John the Baptist and about the light, you know, the, the Word in John... Uh, the book of John that is referring to John the Baptist as the light. It is a, it is a reflective light if you look to the origin of, of the Greek word. And then if you look to the origin as it describes Christ as the light, it is talking about the essential light from which the reflective light comes. And I couldn't help but think as people would consider the miracles of Christ and Pat said it that he came unto his own and they received him not the light shone but they did not see it you know why because they were looking at the things that Christ was doing the miracles the bread the feeding the multitudes and what they were seeing was merely a shadow of the light the light was Christ but they were seeing the shadow the things that the light cast off to the side, the things that are not nearly as important. And the truth comes out, the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, neither can he know them, for they are spiritually discerned. Want to know why they couldn't see the light? We look to the things that are unseen. The things that the natural man cannot see. Why? Because the truth is that the natural man is spiritually blinded. Then we look again to these houses. And the reason that they are built so that the glory of God is made manifest. And so that He is in turn worshipped because of this. Without Jesus, no house has value. 
For none will remain after the judgment, will they? Not a single one. If it were not for Christ. Rightly, Christ is to be worshipped. He's to be glorified. He's to be exalted. Because His righteousness alone can fortify these bodies. These houses. The only way that they will stand is if He is in fact the chief cornerstone on which they're built. If He is fortifying through His grace and through His mercy and through the righteousness that He is imputing through His justification, this is the only way that my house may stand in the midst of evil. And it is coming. It is here. Yet because of God, because of Christ, we will remain. And as I further considered that this house is built by someone, that the builder of all things is God, I quickly am reminded that for this house to stand, there must be Christ. And if the house is facing something that may take it down, then there is a spiritual battle, and there's no greater passage, I believe, than Ephesians 6. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor thy father and mother, which is the first commandment with promise, that it may be well with thee, and thou may livest long on the earth. And ye fathers, provoke not your children to wrath, but bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Servants, be obedient to them that are your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling, in singleness of your heart as unto Christ, not with eye service as men pleasers, but as the servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, with good will, doing service as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that whatever good thing any man doeth, the same shall he receive of the Lord, whether he be bond or free. And ye masters do the same thing unto them for bearing threatening, knowing that your master also is in heaven, neither is there respect of persons with him. What a relevant passage after speaking this way of Moses. No respecter of persons with him. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that ye may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Wherefore, take unto you yourself the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the day of evil having done all to stand therefore having your loins girt about with truth and having on the breastplate of righteousness and your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace above all taking the shield of faith wherewith you shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit which is the word of God, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the spirit and watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for all saints. What is he talking about? What is he saying here in Ephesians? Paul has a particular grasp on the house and that each house has a builder. And that if any house will stand in this war against flesh, war against sin, war against principalities and powers and evil and darkness, he must be girded with the truth. You can't gird yourself with truth. You don't even know where to get it unless you have Jesus Christ. 
So let's see how Christ is building this house. He is building this house, showing us that He is the Messiah, revealing to us that He is God in the flesh, that He is the ultimate, final, sufficient sacrifice. And He is saying, It shall be built upon Me. Therefore, gird yourself with truth. Gird yourself with Me. Put on the breastplate, it says, of righteousness. Where does that come from? Again, it comes from the builder, Jesus Christ. Your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Where does that gospel come from? It comes from the mouth of God through Jesus Christ. And through His word that is truth. You notice this, that you can't get to the second and third parts if you don't put on the first part. How will you know if you haven't? Gird yourself about with truth. Then it says, above all, taking the shield of faith. Where is faith? Faith is a fruit of the Spirit. It's looking to me like this house cannot stand without Jesus Christ. And yet many churches will open the Scriptures this day and not seek Christ in the Scripture. They want a history lesson. They want a feel-good message. And what I am seeing is that my sin is so great that this house cannot stand on its own. Christ has built each and every one. And some would like to shift their foundation onto sand because they like the view of the beach. but it's sinking sand. And what we see is that every man in his mind must be devalued so that he may see the infinite worth of Jesus Christ. That's what the appeal is. Moses was faithful, but consider Jesus. Devalue Moses so that you may properly put the value on Christ which He deserves. An infinite price. We must be devalued so that the infinite worth of Christ is appropriately noted and duly magnified. Worshipped. Glorified. The the text continues to say, but the builder of all things is God. First, in that statement, but the builder of all things is God, we see an expression of Christ's deity. This is not simply to be taken that the builder of all things is God, that we should take things back to the Father and say that He created everything through Christ Jesus and this is the agent. That is certainly true. But the emphasis is to see as Christ is named as creator, as builder, as chief cornerstone, He is also deity. He is also God in the flesh. This is the expression. But the builder of all these houses, of all things, is God. And then two, what we see is, it's not simply speaking of mere creation at this point. The flow of the the, the verse is changed from every house and all things is now speaking to the one who has come to know Christ, who has received Christ. And this is now speaking to the church. He who built all things is God. Christ is this God. He must be considered as one who is more worthy 
of worship and praise and exaltation and recognition above Moses. And this must be seen that Christ is not merely building a house, but he is building a church. And we have to ask ourselves, are we the church that Christ is building? Have we strayed from the blueprints? Have we begun somehow to try to build our own church? God is ordering every piece through Christ to be put in place. He's managing and overseeing as the sovereign one in control, as the first two chapters declare that he is reigning, his power is infinite, his reign is to every corner of the earth and beyond. He is not limited in any way. He is in charge of all the affairs related to the church. Men and leaders of the church are only called to exact, to execute what Christ has already deemed necessary, what He has already declared, what God the Father has already set in motion. This is the makeup. This is the constitution, the sum of what is being said here, that whatever God is doing, He is doing it so that the church will be built and so that the church will be built in such a manner that it will worship and offer praise. Not bloody sacrifices. Not fires or smoke or meats or breads. But bodies as a living sacrifice unto God. The plan here is to show and remind the church, the brethren, holy brethren it describes them, that Christ has brought salvation. Not Moses, not Abraham, not angelic being, not law keeping, but Christ has brought redemption. He is in control. He is sovereign. He will not lose power. He will not be overthrown. And he simply will not allow the church to look like the world. We have to ask, what side are we on? What does it seem that we are playing? Are we riding the fence? Or are we acknowledging that all things belong to him? And in verse 4, I again see... Uh, the wonders of Christ, the great mystery of salvation shown to us. Every house has a builder. Every man must submit. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess. That is the gospel that if you do not submit to the Lord, it does not cease to make Him Lord. He does not need to be made Lord. He is Lord. He has been declared of the Father, the one in whom I am well pleased, worthy of worship. I mean, consider this after the resurrection, Thomas felt. And he said, my Lord, my God, this is him. It is you. And he's blessed because Jesus is worthy of worship. Because Jesus is 
worthy of praise because he is the builder of every house and he better be he better be the leader in the church he better be the rock he better be the chief cornerstone because if Jesus Christ is not all of these things to us he's nothing he is in fact the enemy if that is the case he is the judge, the juror, and the executioner. But the most marvelous part about this is that is not where the penman leaves the epistle. Condemnation is certain, and it's a reality that we must face. But the purpose here is just like with John, just like Mark, Luke, Paul, the purpose is that believing you may have life in his name set the shadows the wonders the miracles set all of those things aside and pick up the truth the truth that we are called each and every one of us to submit and to follow this builder because he has the plan and his plan hasn't failed yet there's nothing better there's nothing more pleasing there's nothing more satisfying and there's nothing more glorious or more infinite in value than to have simply the builder. If we have the builder, we don't have to worry about the house. Right? This is the gospel. And so I, I would ask that if anyone has questions, uh, the church leadership is always available. If you have questions about who Christ is and what He has done, if you have questions about salvation... Uh, we can't necessarily answer them all, but we can do one thing, and that's the very same thing that is being spoken about here, that was spoken of this morning. Like John the Baptist, we can point you to Jesus Christ. And that's all that's necessary. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, I can't woo you to be saved. Because if I could woo you to be saved, I could draw you away from it. But Christ is calling. God is calling, and He says, my sheep hear my voice and they will not follow another. What a marvelous grace. What a show of mercy. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Most gracious and kind, loving Father, we just uh, come to you, Lord, not on bended knee, Lord, but uh, bowed hearts. Lord, to gaze upon the truth of Christ and to consider, Lord, that not a single thing do we have unless it is given of You. Or that every appropriation was Yours to give and it's Yours to take. Lord, and with the temporal things, You do just that. You give and You take. Lord, we... We worship you and praise you that when it comes to Jesus Christ, you give and still give more abundantly. There's no taking back. You're no Indian giver. Lord, and we just ask because you have so much and we have so little that you would give to us the greatest measure of the knowledge of Jesus Christ in the greatest measure of love for Christ. 
so that we in turn may love one another or so that we would even love the unbeliever or that we would be a testimony unto Christ. That we would truly be a living sacrifice and that we would be a holy house consecrated to your work Righteous, set apart by your will, God. Lord, bring us into submission. Lord, cause us to desire such. And like with the hymn we sang this morning, to know, God, that whatever it may come, whatever may be, that it be well with our souls. Lord, we ask that as we continue, Lord, this afternoon and with the, the dinner, Lord, that you would bless the food, that you would bless those who have prepared it, Lord, that you would nourish uh, our bodies with what you have given us to eat, Lord, and that we would uh, partake of it thankfully at every time and every, every meal, considering what Christ has done to make these things and to make most certainly salvation available. In his name we pray, amen.